0: Lord, we come before you and we thank you for bringing us here today to dive into your word. And I pray, God, that you would change our hearts through your word, uh, Lord, that this wouldn't just be um, just words going in one ear and out the other. Uh, but you would change us from the inside out as we purpose to understand uh, what Paul is trying to get across in this text, God. Uh, what it means to be a a son or a daughter of you, and and everything that comes along with that, God. You have given us exceeding abundantly more uh, than we uh, deserve, certainly, and even more than we ask or thank, God, and we thank you so much for that. I pray that you would bless us during this time in your word, that you would blow our minds with your goodness, Lord. So fill us with your spirit, guide us through your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so uh, we've been away from Galatians for a few weeks for various reasons, uh, but we're back in Galatians. As I mentioned, we'll finish Galatians chapter three and get into Galatians chapter four. Uh, now, just a few reminders. If you haven't been with us or even if you have, uh, Paul is writing this letter to a, a region of churches. It's not just one church. There's several churches there in the region of Galatia. And he's writing specifically because there were problems going on. The problems had to do with some false teaching. There was a false gospel being spread uh, by these men referred to as Judaizers. They were saying that, yeah, it's all good and well to have faith in Jesus Christ. and Yeah, he died for our sins and all these different things. Uh, but faith in Christ alone doesn't save you. Uh, you have to have faith in Christ and keep the Mosaic law. So they were telling these people, really, that they had to become a Jew and accept Jesus Christ. They had to get circumcised. They had to go through the process. They had to keep the, the law and the traditions and all these different things if they wanted to solidify their Christianity. And Paul says, whoa, 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 uh, that's far-fetched. That's not true. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that we're saved by grace through faith. We put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then, and only then, can we be saved. So, Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, where we last left off, he helps us understand that though we're saved by grace through faith, that doesn't mean that the law didn't have a purpose. The law did have a purpose. And Paul points to the purpose of the law. The law was meant. To restrain the sin of humanity. It was also meant to point out the sin in humanity. And ultimately, it was to help us understand that we can't keep the law. And we're in desperate need of a savior. So it pointed to the finished work of Jesus Christ. After he discusses the purpose of the law. He's going to go on to discuss the implications of. Of all that we receive when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. By putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive an inheritance. The Bible says here in this text that we're actually heirs to Christ's inheritance. And that's the title of this teaching. Heirs of Christ's inheritance. Heirs of Christ's Inheritance. What does that mean? That means that everything that is the Father's is the Son's. And everything that is the Son's is ours. Everything that belongs to the Father, God says, it's yours. Take it. He has blessed us with a heavenly inheritance that is incorruptible, that is unchanging, that will never fade away. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4. He says to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. And that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. It's unchanging. God promised us this heavenly inheritance. And he's going to deliver on this promise. When everything else in this world fades away. Because it will eventually fade away. Our heavenly inheritance will still stand. This inheritance that we receive by putting faith in Jesus Christ is mind-boggling. It's actually a a mystery, but we're going to discuss this as we dive here into the text. Galatians chapter 3, if you would with me, picking it up in verse 26, it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, for the Jewish mindset to be considered close to God was contingent upon whether or not you kept the law. If you want to be in close proximity with God, then you need to keep the law to a T. And if you're not keeping the law, then you can't be in close proximity to God. Your standing before God was measured by your obedience. But, but Paul, he makes it clear here that our standing before God is not measured by whether or not we keep the law. It's measured by whether or not we put faith in Jesus Christ. And when we put faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul points to here in verse 26, then and only then do we become children of God. This is point number one. We become children of God through faith. We become children of God through faith. Not every person, not every one of God's creations, specifically humanity, is one of his children in the relational sense. Now, there is a sense that uh, every person is God's offspring, um, but in the relational sense... We only become children of God, sons or daughters of God by putting our faith in the person and in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us this in Galatians 3.26. John tells us this in John chapter 1 verse 12. He says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. So to become a children of God means I need to receive Christ into my life. I need to believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If I don't believe who Jesus is, that he was fully God, that he's fully man and what he did, that he led a perfect life. He died on a cross for my sins so that I could be forgiven personally. And then he rose from the dead. If I'm not putting my faith, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person in work, then I am not relationally a child of God. We only become children of God through faith. Now, and this would have been mind-boggling to some of these Jewish believers. They were so caught up in trying to earn Christ's affections, trying to earn this right standing with God. But think about the concept of a family. You can't earn your way into a family. You can't work your way into a family. It doesn't matter how much time you spend at that family's house. Your DNA is your DNA. Okay, It's not going to change. You can't force yourself to be part of a family. You're received into a family. Now, let's take adoption, for example. How is a child adopted? A child is adopted when these future parents they see this child and for whatever reason uh likely the love that they have for this child maybe they want to do a good thing whatever the case may be but that child is adopted and is only adopted according to the will of the parents just as we are only we only become adopted sons and daughters of the living god by the will of the father and his will Was that we could become children of God through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot earn it. We can't force our way into the family of God. It's something that we simply receive. We receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then we become sons and daughters of the Most High God. But what does this mean to believe in Jesus Christ? As you've heard me mention many times in the past, it's not just an intellectual concept of Christ. Yeah, I believe Jesus was the Messiah, and he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. Okay, I'll take that. Uh, it seems to be a pretty verifiable historical fact, which it is, so I'll, I'll receive that intellectually. No, no, no. The, the idea here is not just to have this intellectual concept of Jesus and who he was and what he did. It's a relationship that he desires with us. To believe in Jesus Christ, to receive, See Jesus Christ is to trust Jesus Christ. It is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ to invite Him into our lives. Not just saying that we're inviting Him into our lives, to actually invite Him to be a part of every aspect of our lives. This is what our God wants. He, he wants to be. A part, an intimate part of every single aspect of our lives, not just some uh, distant deity that we pray to when we're in a bind, uh, not just someone that we come to when uh, uh, we're struggling to make ends meet or we have this conflict in our marriage or with our children or uh, family members or friends or coworkers or whatever the case may be. He, he wants to be involved in every single aspect of our life. He wants a relationship, an intimate relationship. And that's what he's inviting us into when he says, put your faith in Jesus Christ. See, we were all born spiritual orphans. Okay, Maybe some of you have been orphans uh, in your life or, or maybe, you know, orphans. I've done some work with orphanages in the past. There's a reality that each and every one of us, when we were born of this world, we were born spiritual orphans, whether our parents were there for us or not. God says you no longer have to be spiritual orphans. He invites us into his family. He says I want to be your father. And I'm a good father. When we respond to that invitation. And we receive Jesus by faith. And we pursue that relationship. Then. God starts treating us like sons and daughters. Now. God treating us like sons and daughters has great implications. So many implications that we can't really get into all of it in this short time that we have. But there's a reality. When we accept his adoption, we gain the blessings of sonship. But we also gain the discipline of sonship. This is what God is inviting us into. Yes, he wants to bless our socks off and he does it in so many different ways. But as any good father would, he disciplines the children that he loves. As he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. God says, if you've never experienced my discipline in, my, in your life, then you're not legitimate children. And that discipline can come in many shapes and forms. It often comes when we're going down the wrong path and God does his best to redirect us. Or sometimes, though we're forgiven of our sins, he gives us over to the consequences of our sins. God is determined to do whatever he needs to do to discipline his children. And we can't confuse uh, discipline with a lack of care or disinterest. God is intimately in love with each and every one of his children. And that love, sometimes it looks like discipline. So when we accept God as our father, yes, we get the blessings, but we also get the discipline. That's the type of relationship that he wants with us. He is our heavenly father. and We are his children. He goes on to say Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. For as many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, he's not speaking specifically of water baptism, okay? He's speaking of being immersed in Christ. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about relationship. He's not talking about just getting your feet wet in the faith. He's talking about a deep relationship this is what god desires he's not talking about picture a swimming pool in your relationship with god he's not talking about you stepping on the first step and staying there if you're stepping on the first step and you're just feet deep into water you are robbing yourselves of all that god wants for you in this life Take a few more steps. Maybe you're knee deep. Maybe that's where you're at in your faith. Again, you're robbing yourselves of all that God wants for you in this life. Maybe you're waist deep. God's calling us to go deep. He's calling us to dive deep. God gives Ezekiel this illustration in Ezekiel chapter 47. Verse 3. He says, and when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim. A river that could not be crossed. God's calling us to deep places. Why? When I'm standing on the steps, I put my trust in myself. When I'm putting myself in a position in the swimming pool where I can just stand spiritually, I'm not putting my faith in God. I'm putting my faith in myself. Maybe I got a little faith in God. At least I was uh, willing to step out into the water. But God's not just calling us to step out into the water. He's calling us to dive. He's calling us to dive in deep, to go into the deep end. Why? Because it's in the deep end that we got to depend on Him. It's in the deep end that we got to trust God. If I'm standing on my own two feet, I'm limiting the amount of trust that I'm putting in God. God wants us to dive deep. He wants a deep seated relationship with us not some surface level relationship not just touching our toes in the water he wants us to jump in the deep end and be all in for him he wants us to be all in for him and he wants us to seek him with our whole heart soul mind and strength with every bit of us this is what paul's speaking of he says, you're immersed in Jesus Christ. I'm drowning in the love and the grace of God. But if you want to drown in the love and the grace of God, then you got to get vulnerable. you got to get off the first step. you got to get out of your comfort zone. Because so you're going to find when you dive deep, God shows up. God shows up in more amazing ways when you dive deep than when you stand on the first step. Or even when you stand waist deep. We're missing out on what God wants for us. When we stay in our comfort zone. I don't like. I'm not the best swimmer. I'm not saying me, maybe you. I'm a pretty good swimmer. I'm not a great swimmer. I don't like to be deep. Uh, it's scary. I'm vulnerable. Uh, I might drown. God's like, that's right where I want you. I want you to be vulnerable. Because I want you to know that when you're vulnerable, when you're dependent on me, I'm going to show up. I'm going to come through. I'm going to show you things in the deep that you would have never learned on the first step. But you've got to be willing to go deep. Immerse yourself in Christ. Baptized into Christ. Now, it's likely that most of these believers were water baptized, though that's not what he's referring to. We had an amazing baptism last weekend. Several people uh, got baptized. And just because we're on the topic of baptism, water baptism is not something that we do to be saved, but it is something that if you are saved, You're called to do Jesus told us to do it. It's an act of obedience. And what I'm doing when I get baptized is basically I'm making a public proclamation that internally I'm committed to Jesus Christ. I'm committed to Christ and publicly I want to declare that I'm really trying to do this Christian thing. Maybe I'm not perfect. None of us are. But I really want to follow the Lord with my whole heart, soul, mind and strength. So he says in Galatians chapter 3, back to verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So to be immersed in Christ, to be baptized in Christ, literally means to put on Christ. In other words, the expression is to clothe yourself with Christ. To to clothe yourself with the character of Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? When I dive deep into my relationship with Jesus Christ and I get vulnerable and I seek him with everything that I got, he starts producing character in me. And then I'm able to clothe myself with the character and person of Jesus Christ. In, In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So we see this comparison, really contrast between putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and fulfilling the desires of our flesh. When I'm putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, what I'm doing is I'm purposing to walk in the spirit, to walk in his character. And I'm not giving the flesh an ounce, an inch. I'm not giving the flesh anything it wants Because when we give the flesh an inch, it takes a mile. So he says, be immersed in Christ, be baptized in Christ, put on Christ. The old man's dead. I'm putting off the old man, putting on the new. The old sinful habits, the old sinful lifestyle, the old person who I used to be. I'm putting it away. I'm done with it. I'm putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm diving deep. I'm immersed in my relationship with him. And through that relationship, I become like him. Being transformed into his image from glory to glory. Just as by the spirit of the Lord. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, remember. A lot of the division that was going on in this region, these churches in the region of Galatia had to do with Jews and Gentile believers. The Jews thought that they had a higher standing with God. They even thought that those Gentile converts who actually became Jewish, the proselytes, those converts, uh, they even thought that their standing, the, the Jewish people standing, was greater than the proselyte standing before God. They literally thought that they were better as they would pray. God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, or I'm not a woman. These are the things that they would pray. So Paul addresses all of these things here in this text. He addresses the three main things that divide all of us. He addresses race. He addresses rank. And he addresses sex. And what his point here is, is that regardless of your race, rank, or sex, God loves us all equally. This is point number two. God loves his children equally. God loves his children equally. Who's your favorite child? Who's your favorite kid? I know you got one. Mine's easy because I only got one. He has my favorite. My favorite child ever. Sometimes we have favorite children, right? But you, each, you tell when you're alone with the, with the one child, you always tell them, you're my favorite. Don't tell the others, right? You guys do that. That's what my parents used to do to me. I'm like, I know I'm not your favorite. I know my sister is. She's the only good one. So don't lie to me about this. We can be honest here. We all know who the favorite child is. But in God's economy... He loves us all equally. He loves each and every one of his children the same. It doesn't matter if you're more spiritual or less spiritual. It doesn't matter if, if you keep the law or you don't keep the law. It doesn't matter if you're a priest or a pastor or a police officer or a firefighter or a real estate agent or a construction worker or an electrician. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. God loves us all equally. We're to find our identity in God's love for us. If we're finding our identity in any other role other than the role as a son or a daughter. Then we're not finding who we truly are. Our identity is to be rooted in And the fact that we are children of God, in other words, our identity must be rooted in the love of God. As John declares throughout the gospel of John, this uh, amazingly, powerfully uh, profound gospel, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, the beloved. That's what his identity was wrapped up in. That's how he saw himself. Uh, uh, The fact that God loves me gives a, a better understanding as to who I am than my own name. I'm wrapped up in the love of God. That's who I am. I'm his child. And I can look at other people's lives and they seem more blessed. Or they seem more spiritual. Or they seem like they got it more together. Or I wish I had their family. Or I wish I had their, God, uh, their, their, uh, their job. Or I wish I had their finances. Or I wish I had this or that or the other. But God loves us all equally. And we got to be content in the love that he has for us as an individual. But this will only come when we get our priorities right. See, all our other roles that we play in this life, whether mom, dad, husband, wife, housewife, hard worker, whatever role we play. All the other roles that we play in this life take a back seat in comparison to our role as a son or a daughter of God. That is our number one role in this world. That is our number one role. We cannot do the other roles well if we're not doing that role well. My number one obligation in this world above being a father, above being a husband, above being a pastor is being a son. It's being a son of God. If I can do that well, as best as I can, then all these other things are going to fall into place. But if I'm not doing the something, well, guess what? All these other things are just going to crumble. It's got to be our utmost priority. You're a son or a daughter. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're a child of God. And you being a child of God is the most important thing, the most important role that you have in this world. So he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek Speaking of rank, there is neither slave nor free. We're all free in Christ. We we all get freedom with Christ. But guess what? That freedom comes at a price first. That freedom, our freedom cost Jesus's life, but also our freedom is going to cost us our life. If we want to live in freedom, then we got to enslave ourselves to Christ. That, that's the only freedom that exists in this world. He, he bought us at a, at a price so that we would live for him, that, that we would be bond servants Slaves to Jesus Christ. Freedom's costly. But if we want it, we got to count the cost and purpose to be enslaved to Christ. Purpose to make him our master. He says, neither male nor female. Let me be very clear here, okay? There's a lot of liberal theologians that like to take this and see, see, you know, you can be whatever you want, whatever you think you can... If I believe I'm a pink elephant, then I'm a pink elephant. You can't see anything to change it. What I believe I am is what I am. He's not saying that there aren't genders, okay? <laughs> He's not saying that there aren't genders. He, he makes it very clear that specific genders, uh, male or female, they have specific roles. What he is saying is whether you're a male or a female, God doesn't love you any lesser anymore. He, he loves men and women the same. Paul, he was a man that stuck up for women. Why? Because Jesus was a man that stuck up for women. Men have no more right to the love of God than women do. He loves his sons and daughters the same. And this is the main point of this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're one body, we're one family, we're to have one heartbeat. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you work 80 hours a week or you're a housewife working 100 hours a week. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter if you're black or you're white, male or female, red, orange, yellow, purple. You speak a different language. You're from a different country. None of that matters. We're called to be one in Christ. Now, let me clarify something. Being one and becoming one are two different things. Okay, God calls us to be one. But it's our responsibility to become one, to become one. It takes effort. It takes energy. Let me show you. It's Ephesians chapter four. If you flip over a few pages to the right. In Ephesians chapter four, verse one, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You got to endeavor to be unified. It's not just going to happen. Unity isn't just something that happens it's something that must be pursued. it's something that must be fought for. it's something that must be worked for. you and your wife, you and your husband, yeah, the two shall become one flesh and God at the consummation of the marriage, you guys became one, but you're also becoming one. To become unified it's going to take work it's going to take sacrifice it's going to take energy. In the body of Christ, the same holds true. We're not going to be a unified body of Christ by just sitting back, kicking back and watching the show. It's going to take work. We're going to have to fight for it. We're going to have to pursue relationships. We're going to have the purpose to reconcile with people. When they wronged us or when we wronged them. In Proverbs 18, it says, if you want to make friends, you got to be friendly proverbs 18 24 right common sense if you want friends you got to be friendly like this wisdom from above right oh well, yeah it makes sense but sometimes we don't do that it's like man i don't have any friends i'm lonely i'm empty i need relationships but we won't take the steps to get out of our comfort zone and pursue a relationship guess what unity won't happen just by you coming to church Unity won't just happen by you coming to a home group or coming to men's study or coming to a women's group. Unity is going to happen when you pursue out individuals. See, unity starts with your pursuit of one person. That's where it starts. It doesn't just all collectively happen at once. It's just It starts with us as individuals seeking out other individuals and building relationship with them. And as we build relationship with them, we learn that it's possible to build relationship with others. And we can have friends. And we can grow in oneness. And this is what God has called us to do. That we're called to be one. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus Now, it's also important to note that Paul's not saying that there aren't any differences between men and women, right? He's not saying that there aren't any differences between Jews and Greeks. He's not saying that there aren't any differences between uh, slaves and, and free men. There are absolutely differences. We're diverse, and it's a beautiful thing. All tongues, tribes, and nations. It's okay to be different. You are specifically set apart as an individual. God has wired you differently than every single person in this room. He's wired you differently than every single person in this world. And He wants to use your differences for His glory. Embrace our differences. But at the same time, recognize the goal is to be unified. So don't use your differences as an excuse to not be unified with the person. Because they speak a different language. Or because... Uh, I don't like girls, or I don't like boys, or I don't like people from this uh, nationality, or I don't like people from that nationality. We can use differences as an excuse to not unify. But we shouldn't do that. We can't do that. We're called to be unified. It doesn't matter what we do, where we come from, how we were brought up, our race, our rank, our sex. We're charged by the Lord to be one, to become one. As he's called us to become one. Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. And if you are Christ. Then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. The issue is not. Whether someone is a Jew. Or Greek. Slave or free. Man or woman. The issue. Is if they are Christ's. He Says that if you are Christ. If. If you are Christ. This is what's important regardless of race rank sex the important and most important thing is that you better make sure you are Christ you better make sure you're Christ how does that happen again by putting our faith in him and here's the beauty as we put our faith in him and we learn who he is we grow to understand who we are who we are in Christ is who we really are that's who we are we aren't who the world says we are We aren't who our family says we are most of the time. We aren't who our friends say we are. We aren't who our employees or employers say we are. If what they say we are contradicts what God says we are, then that's not who we are. We are who Christ says we are. We are who he's created us to be. We were created in the image of Christ. The only way for us to understand who we are is to understand who he is. If I'm created in the image of God, i got to understand what that image is or who that image is so that I can understand the image that I'm supposed to reflect. And as I seek who he is, I find out who I am. It says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, which was crucial. The Jews during that time period, a proselyte, someone that converted to Judaism, got circumcised, went through ceremonial cleansing processes, they wouldn't even refer to them as a son of Abraham because they weren't descendants of Abraham. But Paul says here, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Greek, man or woman, slave or free. If you are Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and received him as your Lord and Savior, then not only are you Christ, you are Abraham's seed, meaning you are a son or daughter, not only of God, but also of Abraham. We're spiritual children of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the faith. And it doesn't matter whether I was born a Gentile, which I was, or someone was born a Jew. Those who are Abraham's are of Abraham's seed are those who put their faith in Abraham. Now this can get confusing, but we see that there's actually promises specifically for the lineage of Abraham as descendants. And there's also promises for uh, the spiritual seed of Abraham. But that's kind of a different topic for a different day. Paul is making it clear to Gentile believers, as well as Jewish believers, you are Abraham's seed. You're a son of Abraham through faith in God. He says here in verse 29 and heirs according to the promise. To be children of God means that we are heirs according to the promise that was originally made to Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12. And there's basically like three pieces to this promise. We see uh, that God uh, promised Abraham that he would give him the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land. That he would uh, bless his descendants Okay, that they'd be as numerous as the stars of the sky and that he would also bless the nations. Uh, he would, uh, through his seed, sorry, he'd bless all the families of the earth. Paul has already made it clear that that seed that God was referring to, that seed is no other than the person of Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. But there's a piece of this promise that alludes to the heavenly inheritance that he's referring to. As I mentioned, God promised Abraham the promised land. That's why it's referred to as the promised land, right? Because God promised it. So God promised him the land, and then he gave the descendants that land where they still dwell today. Just as God promised Abraham the promised land of Israel, so too does God promise us the promised land of heaven. And Jesus promises us this. In John chapter 14, in John chapter 14, verse 1, That we are going to spend eternity with Him. That He's preparing a place for us in the heavenlies. Now how cruel would it be if Jesus made this promise and lied? That's why He says, let not your heart be troubled. You don't have to question this promise. You don't have to question where you're going after this if you put your faith in Me. If you trust in Me. He says, I wouldn't have told you that I was going to do this if I wasn't going to do it. I'm telling you I'm going to do it because I want you to... No, you can trust it. You can trust this heavenly inheritance that I'm preparing for you. So Paul, he tells us, "Your are heirs according to the promise that was made to Abraham, that was fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That promise being fulfilled through the gospel, in which, if we put our faith... We receive the promised land. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. Child here, uh, the word has the idea of a minor, uh, someone that was underage, someone that wasn't considered legally to be an adult. Now, you had different traditions at this time, depending on how someone grew up, in what culture, whether they were a Greek or a Jew or a Roman. Uh, the Greeks and the Jews, they specifically had this birth date. For the girls and the guys that when they turn this certain age, they still do it today. When they turn this certain age, now no longer are they a child. They become an adult, a young man or a young woman. But it doesn't matter whether they're mature or not. It's just, hey, you turn uh, 12, 13 years old. Now you're a man or now you're a woman. Uh, the Greeks had a similar way of doing things. It was a a specific age that that person turned. The Romans did it differently, however. The Romans, it was based on the father's discernment of the child. If the father discerned, hey, all right, this kid grew up. Bobby grew up. Judy grew up. They're no longer acting like a kid anymore. Now I can give them more responsibilities. They're acting more like an adult. So I'm going to say uh, they're an adult now. And they'd have a ceremony and they would declare that uh, person was no longer a child. Now they were an adult. And now what would traditionally happen with this ceremony is the... Boy child uh, would take his ball, his favorite toy, and he would offer it to Apollo, meaning I'm putting away childish things. Or the girl would take a doll and she would offer it uh, to Apollo, saying I'm putting away childish things. So it seems here with all the different traditions and cultures that are mingled here in Israel at the time that Paul is likely referring to Roman tradition as he mentions an appointed time. So he continues to elaborate on this in verse two, Galatians chapter four, verse two, he says, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. So the father decides when the child is ready to become an adult at an appointed time. Now it says back in verse one that he is master of all. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. So the child is promised everything that the father has. Okay, he's promised everything that the father has. And he's considered master of all that the father has. But because he's not ready yet, he's not an adult. He doesn't have the responsibilities as even some of the hired servants, as some of the slaves. So though he is master of all, he's just not ready yet. He hasn't matured yet. Technically, through the promise, he has everything that's the father's. But he hasn't received it yet. So Paul, he gives us this illustration in verse 2. But is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. he would already mentioned that... The law is our pedagogue or tutor in the New King James Version. Uh, But it's more than a tutor, as we mentioned in the past. This was the servant that spent so much time with the child. The servant was really responsible for raising this child to become an adult. The servant would ultimately work themselves out of a job. This was the responsibility. And we see Paul use this as an illustration to... Uh, help us understand the point of the law. See, all mankind was under the law, under this guardianship, under this pedagogue, until an appointed time, till a specific time appointed by the Father. The text continues. In verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Okay. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this means here, the elements of the world. Uh, it's also translated the ABCs of the world uh, in the Greek. And what he's likely referring to uh, is this general principle in the world of cause and effect. Okay, We see this principle in the world, not that there's always fairness. Uh, there will be one day, but hey, you know, you do good things, good things generally tend to happen to you. You do bad things, bad things generally tend uh, to happen to you. There's exceptions to the principle, certainly, but he says here when uh, sorry, verse three, uh, when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world before we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Uh, Many of us most of us all of us were under the bondage of this idea of cause and effect. If I do good things good things will happen to me if I do bad things bad things will happen to me specifically that concept as it pertains to our relationship with God. Right? We basically experience this in every relationship that we have on earth with humans. Uh, if I treat this person well, then generally speaking, they're gonna treat me well. If I treat them poorly, then generally speaking, they're gonna treat me poorly. And we bring this concept into our understanding of God. If I live right, if my balance scale of of good deeds outweighs bad deeds, then maybe I'll make it to heaven. Maybe God will accept me. It's religiosity. It's putting an emphasis on a works-based faith. I don't assume that God loves me unless I live up to this certain standard. Now, he says we're in bondage under the elements of the world. Until this appointed time, the appointed time when Jesus would come on the scene, which he's going to mention in the next verse. See, grace changes everything. It changes our mentality. When we receive the grace of God, when we recognize that Jesus died on a cross for our sins, not because of anything we did for him, Not because we earned it, not because we deserved it. Grace, by definition, unearned, unmerited favor from God. We do not earn God's love. We can't. We can't live up to the standard. He loves us, despite our imperfections, despite our flaws. We were under this mindset. I do this, I get this. If I don't live right, God's going to hate me. But grace changed everything. Now, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're accepted by God on His terms, not our terms. And His terms, say, "Hey, just put faith in Me, and hey, just trust in Me. Just pursue relationship with Me, and I'll wipe all your sins away. I'll forget them. I'll forgive them." This is a hard concept for many of us to receive, especially at first. What I can just come to God by faith, and literally all the junk I did in my life, He's going to wipe away? Yeah. That's what he says. That's what he promises. But sometimes we can even struggle with this as believers. We can forget grace. We can neglect grace. We can fall back into this religious mentality like these believers did here. We have a problem receiving the grace of God, accepting the love of God. We're constantly trying to earn God's love when we can't earn it anymore. We can't. Now. Yeah, we're called to live a right lifestyle. But our motivation for living a right lifestyle is not to earn God's love. It's because of God's love. For the love of Christ compels me to live this certain way. I want to. I'm not doing these things because I think it's going to make God love me more. I know he loves me just the way that I am. And his love for me is a motivation for me to try to live the best that I can. Now. We also see. We'll see uh, next week in Galatians chapter four, verse nine, that uh, these elements of the world or principles of the world uh, also is alluding to these pagan practices of worshiping demons. But we'll get into that next week. The text continues. Galatians chapter four. Verse four. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So when the appointed time came jesus sent forth his son it was at an appointed time a specific moment in history god wasn't confused god wasn't debating since the foundations of the earth he knew the very day that he would bring jesus into this world and the bible actually tells us when that day would be there's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, if you want to write this down, uh, verses 24 to 27, for time's sake, I'll just paraphrase it. Uh, Daniel mentions these 70 weeks uh, connected to the coming of the Messiah, and he actually connects the first coming and the second coming there. And we see these 70 weeks, the word week in the Hebrew is actually the word shabuah, and it means increment of seven. So what he's talking about is not 70 weeks, he's talking about 70 increments of seven years, which... Uh, ends up equaling 490 years. And he says, from the going forth at the command to rebuild Jerusalem, that was given in Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, by Arta, Artaxerxes, he told Nehemiah to go back to build the, te- or sorry, to build the walls. Zerubbabel built the temple. But from that command, 483 years later, Messiah the prince would come on the scene. The Bible tells us exact time when Jesus would come on the scene. And guess what? 483 years later, to the T, that's exactly when Jesus Christ stepped into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry, the week of his death. God had an appointed time to send his son to this earth, and it was a perfect time. And we can't completely understand the mysteries of the perfection of this timeline and why God saw fit to send Jesus specifically 2,000 years ago. And some of us might think, man, I wish uh, God the first coming happened uh, during my lifetime so I could experience it. And that would probably be awesome to have that encounter with Jesus and him perform all these healings and listening to him, to him uh, teach. That would be great. But God had specific reasons why he appointed this time out of all times throughout history. And we see there's some practical reasons during that time, because Greek was the world power just before Rome, so you had a lot of Greek influence. Uh, The Greek culture and the Greek language, many people spoke Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek for a reason. So now you have this common language that most people understand and can speak, so the gospel is able to spread through this common language. You also see the Romans, they... uh, Accomplished so much one being they made travel to distant places uh easily accessible as you heard the phrase all roads lead to rome so now we have a common language but we also have all these roads where we can go down to get to these different villages that we couldn't get to before these different countries these different people groups god knew the perfect time for jesus to come on the scene it was also a time of great darkness people were struggling with sin as they are today Many likely crying out for a savior. So God, he appointed the specific time. It says in verse four, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Jesus was of the seed of a woman, not of the seed of a man. Every single person on the face of this earth is of the seed of a man. Okay, well, just tell me if you had an immaculate conception. Okay, I haven't heard of anybody but Jesus, um, which is. Crucial because all of us have inherited the sinful nature of Adam. Okay. But Jesus, because he was born of the seed of the woman conceived by the Holy Spirit, he did not inherit the sin of Adam. Now, this has great implications connecting as far back to one of the very first prophecies that was ever given back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, God gives this prophecy to the serpent. And he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, 14. He says, so the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you have you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly. You shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of a woman. What is this he's talking about? The miraculous, immaculate conception of Jesus Christ. The virgin birth that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7. That was fulfilled in the gospel, in the person of Jesus Christ. But we see God promises to Satan. God makes promises to Satan too. He promises, hey, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Not the seed of Adam, the seed of the woman. Jesus came as the seed of the woman. So on the cross, someone was getting crucified. Nails in the hands. Nails in the feet They'd usually have this piece of wood. Their knees would be slightly bent because on the, uh, when you were crucified, uh, you typically died from asphyxiation and you wouldn't be able to breathe uh, because hanging down like this, you can't breathe very well. So what they'd have to do in agony, imagine your hands and feet being nailed, they would have to push themselves up. With their toes. And what would happen is their heels would rub against the wood. They would get splintered. They would get bruised. They would be just disgusting looking. So this is what Jesus is doing. Every time he's saying something. Okay, he has seven sayings on the cross. His last sayings. And every time he has to say something. He has to push his feet up. Further bruising and damaging his heels. But in the moment that he damaged his heels. And he gave up his spirit. He crushed The head of the serpent. Jesus fulfills the prophecy. He's the seed of the woman. So, he says, born of a woman. Born under the law. Now, Jesus wasn't born under sin like we are. Because he was born of the seed of the woman. But he was born under the law, meaning he was required to keep the law. He was required to keep it to a T. And he did. So he says, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And Jesus fulfilled the law. Even the curses that are connected to not keeping the law. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. He came to redeem everyone who was under the law. Now, he's not just speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to everyone. As I've mentioned in the past, when God spoke the Ten Commandments, uh, rabbis still teach to this day and even back then that he spoke them in the 70 languages of the world, meaning the, the, all the languages of the world, not that there were only 70. But the point is, God was putting everybody under his moral standard. He was putting everybody under the law. And Jesus, he came also under the law, fulfilling the law. He had to fulfill the law. Why? It says here in verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. Redeemed, again, it means to, be, to buy back. Jesus paid the price for our sins, but also our lives, so that we would ultimately live for him. But his redemption was costly. It cost him, our redemption, sorry, cost Jesus his life. Says this in Deuteronomy chapter fifteen, God speaking to the Israelites about His redemptive work of fleeing, uh, um, delivering them from the slavery in Egypt. He says in Deuteronomy fifteen fifteen, "You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today." So, just as God redeemed Israel, He paid the price to. Um, free them from the bondage of egypt which is a picture of the world a picture of our sins so too did jesus christ on the cross redeem us from the world he redeemed us from our flesh he redeemed us from our sins we should purpose to remember the lives that god delivered us from he's redeemed us why in galatians chapter 4 verse 5 he says to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus doesn't just offer us redemption. He offers us adoption. It wasn't just like, ah, oh, I died on the cross. So your sins are forgiven and, you know, see you later. Uh, uh, no, he, he says, I died on the cross that so your sins are forgiven. But in order for those sins to be forgiven, you got to receive my invitation of adoption. You got to become my child. I want you to be my children. That's why he redeemed the world. He died for the sins of the world. First John makes that very clear. He died for everybody's sins. That doesn't mean everybody's forgiven. Because not everybody receives that invitation of adoption. When we receive that invitation of adoption, then we become sons and daughters. Maybe there was a point in your life where you felt like an orphan. You felt abandoned by the world, by your family, by your friends, by someone. You just felt lost, hopeless, helpless. Jesus says, whether you felt it or not, that was your spiritual state. And he came to change it. Let me show you. It's Ezekiel chapter 16. He's speaking to Israel, but it applies to all of us. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4, he says, As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was cut. Your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water. To cleanse you, you are not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. Meaning, everybody's abandoned you. Nobody was there for you. You were a spiritual orphan, hopeless and helpless. Verse 5, now I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you, were your, when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew, matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. God says, remember what I did for you. You were abandoned by the world. Nobody wants wanted you. Nobody cared for you. You were spiritual orphans. And I saw you in your blood. You weren't being taken care of. I saw you lying there abandoned. I came and I showed up and I saved you. I rescued you. And not only that, I said live. I gave you purpose. I made you thrive. I gave you so much. This is what I've done for you. Because this is what I want for you. When no one else is there for you, I can be there for you. And i got a purpose and a life and a hope for you. That can only be found in me. This is why Jesus redeemed us. Because he offers this life. But this life only exists when we receive that invitation. To become adopted sons and daughters of God. In the Roman culture to be an adopted child. That meant that you have every right of a legitimate child. Jesus says when I adopt you. I I look at you the same as any one of my children. I I love you equally. You you get the same inheritance as everyone else. You're not going to be the outcast. You're not going to be the black sheep. You're going to be mine. I've marked you. I've put my name on you. I've called you by your name. I've given you your name. So Jesus, he redeemed the world in hopes that we would receive this invitation of adoption. Verse six, we're almost there. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, father. Point number three. We inherit the Holy Spirit. We inherit the Holy Spirit. When we accept the invitation to become sons and daughters of the most high God, right off the bat, the spirit comes and lives inside of us. He, the Holy Spirit, one of the three persons of the triune God, he comes and dwells inside of us. Well, how will we know if God is dwelling inside of us? How will we know if the Holy Spirit is, is living in us? Well, there will be evidence. There will be fruit. There will be sanctification. In Romans chapter 8, let me show you a couple verses. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, he says, this, uh, look at verse 15 actually. For you did not the receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. So you don't need to be afraid. But you received the spirit of adoption. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness that we are children of God. That only happens when he lives inside of us. He he dwells inside of us. How we know that he dwells inside of us. How we know that he's bearing witness that we truly are children of God. He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We can be confident that we've received the indwelling spirit that seals us for the day of redemption, literally seals our salvation. When the love of God has been poured out on us, when we experience the love of God in our life, but not only when we experience God's love for us, when we experience the love for God. And we experience a love for people. It's all three of those things. God's love for us, us, our love for him, and our love for people. We can be confident that we've received the Holy Spirit when we bear fruit. It is not the fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those words are pointing back to love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And when there's love in our life, that's evident that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us. See, God, he sent his son so that we could be secure in our sonship. But God sent his spirit so that we might experience what it means to be sons of God, that, that we can experience the love of God in our life, that we can experience the love for God in our life, that we can experience love for other children of God and people in general. says the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Galatians chapter four, verse six God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. This is an Aramaic word that means daddy. It's a word of affection. It's a word of intimacy. It's the word that a kid would use when he's running and he falls and he trips and he scrapes his knees and he's crying and he's sad. and He cries out, Abba, Father, take care of me. I need you. Help me. Pick me up. Put me back on my feet. I know you're there for me. This is the word. This is the word that's being used. That's what it means when we say Heavenly Father. Our spirits are crying out, Daddy, like, Dad, I need you. Be there for me. This is the same word that Jesus used the night before he died. When he cries out to the Father. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, he's saying, I know the suffering that awaits me. And I know there's no other way, but I know you're still my dad. And I know you care. I know you love me. And I know that if there was another way. That, 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 that this couldn't happen. That, that, that I didn't have to suffer on the cross. Uh, I know you would provide a different way. But I recognize there's no other way. But I also know. Despite my suffering. You're still my dad. You still love me. You're still there for me. You still care for me. This is the relationship that. God the Father wants with each and every individual. Not that he's just this distant deity, but that he is our dad, our father. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in our life. The Holy Spirit awakens our hearts to the reality of God's love for us, how much he cares for us. In closing, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Therefore. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ, he says, you're no longer a slave. You don't have to live in the bondage. I delivered you from it. You're a son. There's freedom in being a son. You don't have to to live that way anymore. I'm your father. I took care of all that. I wiped you. I cleansed you. I cared for you. And now I got something else for you. You're not a slave anymore. Jesus illustrates this with the prodigal son. With the prodigal son, he just blows all his inheritance. And he's sitting there coveting the pig food. And he's got nothing left. He hit rock bottom. And he goes, man, it'd be better to be a slave to my father than be in the situation that I'm in. Now, maybe if I go back, my dad will at least give me the job as a servant. And what does he do? He comes home. How does his father respond to him? He runs to him. He receives him. He embraces him. He doesn't treat him as a slave. He treats him as a king. He puts a robe on him. He puts a ring on him. He puts sandals on his feet. This is how the Father wants to receive each and every one of us. So he says, how is this possible? Look, verse seven. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Point number four, we are heirs through Christ. We are heirs through Christ. Through Christ we become free from the slavery of sin. Through Christ we become adopted sons and daughters of the King. Uh, Through Christ we receive this heavenly inheritance. But guess what? We're heirs to the inheritance of God Himself. It's not just the Kingdom of Heaven, it's God Himself. John Piper, he poses this amazingly powerful question that I constantly go back to. He says this, listen, please, carefully. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? If you were provided everything, everything that you could hope, think of, dream of, in heaven, paradise, Would you take it if Christ wasn't there? See, heaven isn't heaven without Christ. Christ is what makes heaven heaven. And Christ is our inheritance. We don't have to wait for our heavenly inheritance. In one sense, yes, we'll be with God forever. But we can receive our heavenly inheritance and enjoy our heavenly inheritance right now in this moment. How? Because we inherit the King himself, not just the kingdom. We can completely immerse ourselves in Jesus Christ now. We can dive deep into relationship with Him. We can enjoy the inheritance in the present as we wait for the kingdom in the future. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, this is where we'll close. Let's read it real quick. In Hebrews 4 16, He says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because that's part of your inheritance. When you accepted Jesus, you, 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 you accepted the king. You accepted relationship. And you have every right as an adopted, legitimate son and daughter of God to come before the throne of grace. To seek him. To seek out his presence. To seek him out in intimacy. We have access to God. We have access to our inheritance in part right now. Through the person of Jesus Christ. Let us be sons and daughters. That take advantage of our inheritance. Let us not be sons and daughters that squander it. That we're constantly looking for the future. And, and complaining about our circumstances. When the reality of it is we have the king with us right now. We can enjoy our a heavenly inheritance in the presence through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this, if you dive deep and immerse yourself in Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about getting your feet wet, I'm not talking about ankle deep or knee deep or waist deep water. If you dive deep and immerse yourself in the person of Jesus Christ and cling to and enjoy your inheritance... You will experience love in this life. You will experience joy in this life. You will experience peace in this life. You will experience a taste of heaven on earth. But until you're willing to dive deep and immerse yourself in Jesus Christ, you're just going to be sitting there on that top step, wondering what it's like in the deep end and missing out. If we want to get the fullness of that inheritance as much as we can on earth, we've got to dive deep. We've got to be vulnerable. We've got to seek them with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for this invitation to be adopted sons and daughters. Lord, you're so good to us. We do not deserve to be called children of God. As John said, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Even John in his old age it was still astonishing to him. It was a mystery. God, I pray that we would never get tired of it. That we wouldn't just, oh, yeah, yeah, we're children of God. Lord, but this would be something that's so special to us, so sacred to us, that we would consider what it cost us, or cost you, sorry. But we would also consider all that is ours as children of God. The heavenly inheritance that awaits us in the future, but also, also the inheritance that we can experience today. God, I pray that we would be people that dive deep, that we would immerse ourselves with you, that we would experience a taste of heaven on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.